Today is December 17th, 2023. And in just four days from now, we'll arrive at the winter solstice. Half of the earth will be tilted the farthest away from the sun, such that it's the shortest and darkest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. But with it brings the promise of increasing light in the days and months ahead. And in ancient traditions dating as far back as the late Stone Age, the winter solstice has symbolized rebirth, renewal, a new beginning. And of course, we can say the same about the upcoming New Year's celebration that's going to happen in a couple weeks. As we say goodbye, perhaps even good riddance, (laughs) to, to 2023 and usher in 2024, Uh, Many of us will make New Year's resolutions to take up a new habit or behavior that is, say, more healthier or skillful, and letting go of our old harmful or unskillful ways. It's interesting, though, you know, the marking of the eve of the new year as December 31st is totally arbitrary in in that it's culture-specific. It's based on the Gregorian calendar that was implemented by the Catholic Church in the year 1582 by Pope Gregory XIII., And it's a good reminder that our notion of time is just that, a notion. It's a social construct. It's a product of our social conditioning. We're conditioned to measure time, not only in terms of days and months, but seconds and minutes. And there's this whole vocabulary that reinforces the idea that time is linear. Words like earlier and later, before and after. And we've got watches and clocks and cell phones and calendars to keep track of how we spend our time. And that we use an economic metaphor, spend, to refer to our relationship to time is also very telling. 
Time is money. It has value. It's a commodity. It can be measured, bought, sold, saved. It can be used for gain. It's not to be lost or wasted, squandered. And many of us lament that we don't have enough of it. We don't have enough time or that we're always running out of it. We might tell ourselves, if only there was an extra hour in the day, you know, then I would have time to sit or exercise or, you know, whatever it is that we've been struggling to do. The anthropologist Edward T. Hall wrote about the human relationship to time in his book, The Silent Language, which was published in 1966. And I first came upon his work when I was a graduate student and I was studying intercultural communication. So Hall researched the human sense of time across cultures, and he came up with two categories, polychronic and monochronic. He said that in polychronic cultures, which include countries in Latin America, the Mediterranean, Africa, and the Middle East, timetables and agendas are relaxed for the most part. And that's because people and relationships matter more than being on time. So in a, in a polychronic society, there's no offense in arriving late to a meeting or event. Plans and schedules are fluid. What matters most is addressing people's needs and interests in the moment. So meetings may not only start late, but they may run on in the interest of the natural course of conversation. And Hall says that folks who are attuned to this way of life may resent, quote, unquote, the tyranny of the clock, which is common in monochronic societies, while those who stick to the tyranny of the clock probably get annoyed by meetings that run on and on without the efficient management of time gets wasted. In monochronic societies, which would include Northern Europe and North America, time is viewed as a means of imposing order, being punctual, completing tasks, keeping schedules. All of these things are valued and may even be viewed as more important than relationships. 
So when a meeting starts at 8 a.m., it starts at 8 a.m., not 8.05. You're expected to arrive on time. And if you're late, you're expected to apologize. And your oversight can even uh, result in some form of public shaming. And as a consequence, the perceived need to be on time becomes a source of anxiety. Now, in the tradition of Zen training, being on time has a very different quality to it than what Hall describes of monochronic cultures. I'm not aware of him including Zen monasteries in his cross-cultural study. For those in the training program at our center, when the big bell is struck five minutes before the start of a formal sitting, we need to be in the zendo or on our way to the zendo. It's a signal to drop whatever we're doing, which requires awareness, not being lost in thoughts, and to respond without hesitation. (coughs) So on the surface, it, it might appear that we're clinging to time in a monochronic sense, but actually in heading straight to the zendo, At the sound of the bell, we're learning to let go. So the emphasis is not so much on being on time as it is noticing and responding. And also the the timing of rounds, whether they're 25 minutes or 35 minutes, helps us also to let go of our individual preferences. In sitting still with others, we're a lot less likely to fidget. And this only aids us in allowing the body-mind to settle. Timed rounds are also in the spirit of practicing in unison as a sangha, making a commitment to support one another's practice. So when it comes to formal sittings, which have a specific start time and end time, the quality of our sitting together in the zendo would be compromised if people were routinely arriving late or leaving early, particularly during a round of sitting. It's not so much an issue during kinhin when there's movement in the zendo. And aside from the practical aspect, we can experience great inspiration doing zazen together, whether here in the zendo or on Zoom We benefit from the wisdom example and never failing help 
of Sangha. Getting back to Hall's research on time, these two categories, polychronic and monochronic, we can probably all appreciate the value of these two different attitudes about time. There are differing emphases on cultivating human relationships and doing what needs to be done in a timely manner. Both have value. Part of what got me onto this topic of time was a Radio Lab podcast that I listened to a few days ago. It was titled Time, and it came out in 2010. And it gets both into the cultural and also scientific understandings and reveals how our monochronic society came to be. And one interesting thing that I learned is that in the context of the United States in particular, there was a notable shift toward a rigid approach to time that happened with the introduction of the railroad. Prior to the railroad, it turns out clock time varied from place to place. One person's clock might say it's, you know, 2.04 p.m., and another person, maybe their next-door neighbor's clock, would say it's um, 2.08 p.m. There was no official time, no synchronization across clocks, even within the same town. And that was fine. People worked it out. And depending on one's community, where one lived and one's occupation, especially if you lived in a rural setting or you were a farmer, you wouldn't even necessarily need to have a clock. You could simply look up at the sky and know what time it was. You could tell the time of the day by the sound of the birds, or even the opening and closing of certain types of flowers, morning glories and evening primroses. You didn't need a clock to tell you it was time to wake up, time to eat, time to work. Now about the railroad, by 1880, according to this podcast, it became essential um, to, <coughs> to have synchronized time uh, for developments in commerce. Having a consistent railroad time was necessary for the smooth transport and delivery of goods in coordination with businesses and banks. 
So this led to a conflict between various local times and railroad time, and they weren't in sync. But eventually, and not surprisingly, the railroad time went out, and thus we had the standardization of clock time across communities. And this is all kind of fascinating to me to see to what extent you know, time as we conventionally understand it and take it for granted um, is a social construct. But that's not to say that time doesn't pass. The passing of time is an observable phenomenon, and it's a significant part of being a living being. Every day we, we can observe the interplay of light and darkness, the cycle of the seasons, spring to summer, fall to winter, back to spring, the winter and summer solstice. So in a very basic way, we experience time as movement, change, and change is constant. Birth, death, arising and disappearing, growth and decay. It's not just a process that we can observe outside ourselves. We're it. We are change. We are time. Nothing about us is static. If we were to reflect back over time, we might be aware of changes in ourselves, in our personality, our needs, our values our likes, dislikes, beliefs, as we developed into adults. Everything we associate with our identity, though, is in flux. I'm not the person I was 10 years ago. And I'm not the person I was a second ago. We're constantly in motion and responding and adapting to changing conditions. And, of course, we experience this in a very, very bodily way. Our bodies transform as we age. In our younger years, at first, we get taller, but then at some point, perhaps once we reach 50 or 60, we start to get shorter. Our skin becomes wrinkly. Joints stiffen up. 
muscles atrophy. And there's a lot of change that happens in our body moment by moment that we're not able to notice. It's beyond our ordinary perception. Unless we were looking through a microscope, we wouldn't notice that our cells are constantly dividing and multiplying, shrinking, decreasing in number, dying off. They can change from normal to abnormal, and we wouldn't notice it. And there's also the trillions of microbes that live inside us and on our skin. They're constantly changing, too. Here at Arnold Park, we have an inscription on the wooden block that's played to signal the start of a formal sitting. And it's uh, a verse attributed to Zen Master Dogen. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life slips quickly by. Time waits for no one. Wake up, wake up. Don't waste a moment. Life can and does change in a moment. This past month, our Sangha was reminded of this, in case we needed to be, when a longtime local member had a major stroke. Up until the moment he had that stroke, he had been leading an active, healthy life running for exercise an hour every day, very disciplined. And then one day, seemingly out of nowhere, just one instant, everything changed for him. The heart of the Buddha's teaching is the truth that no one and no thing lasts. And even though we can so easily go about our everyday life unaware of the fact that it's transient, that's changing, And we, of course, we do that by getting caught up in countless distractions and chasing after anything that brings us comfort and pleasure, drifting into thoughts. Even though we can live our lives that way, to some degree or another, 
each one of us here, each one of us listening in, knows it. We wouldn't be drawn to Zen practice if we didn't. And we can distract ourselves all we want. It doesn't change the truth that one day, sooner or later, we and the people we love will die. We just don't know the timing of it. The great master Linji known as Rinzai in Japanese, put it this way. There is no place of rest in the three worlds. It is like a house on fire. This is not a place for you to stay long. The murderous demon of impermanence strikes in a single instant. Without choosing between high and low, old and young do you wish to do you wish to be not different from the buddhas and ancestors then just do not look for anything outside in uh, buddhist cosmology the three worlds are the realms of desire form and formlessness and they're understood in ascending order. And, uh, you know, without getting into too much uh, detail, the, these three worlds constitute sansara, the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. The lowest realm is desire, and that includes beings that are attached to the pursuit of desire, sensory pleasure, including us humans. And then there's a realm of form where one no longer clings to desire but still has a bodily form. And then lastly, the highest realm, formlessness, where there's no material body, just consciousness. So when Linji says there's no place of rest in the three worlds, it's like a house on fire, he's saying that in order to, liber to liberate ourselves from samsara, time is of the essence. The fire is burning right now. What better time than now? If not now, when? And then he says, just do not look for anything outside. In other words, turn inward. Look at me. This very moment. This. Zen Master Dogen said, Time doesn't pass in vain. People 
pass in vain. Each and every moment we're presented with a choice. We can choose to be present. We can choose to be here. We can choose not to drift away into thoughts. We can choose to be one with this moment just as it is. Whatever we're doing, wherever we are, whatever conditions we're experiencing, we don't need to go somewhere else or wait for the right conditions. The time to practice is always now. So that means when you're feeling tired, bored, blah, unmotivated, gloomy, angry, whatever it is, that's a time to practice. Just as much as it is when you're feeling energized and buoyant. Right now is always the time to practice. In the Blue Cliff record, case number six, Umon addressed the assembly and said, I don't ask about the days before the 15th of the month, but what about after the 15th? Give me a word about those days. And then Umon answered his own question, saying, Every day is a good day. Every moment is just that. And by the way, the 15th of the month is not just some random date but it refers to the lunar cycle. It takes 15 days for the moon to wane to the point where it becomes completely invisible. And that day is called a new moon day. So we've looked at time so far as a a social construct and as a call to practice. But there's another way that we can look at it. And that is through the process of cause and effect that unfolds over lifetimes. Karma. In very simple terms, you hear people say, what goes around comes around. How we, how we think, speak, act right now has an effect in the future. If I do good things in the present, this is going to help reduce 
my karmic debt from my misdeeds in the past. So there's a sense of movement there from cause to effect. But that's actually a shallow (coughs) understanding of karma. It's It's a mistake to see karma as simply a linear or a chronological process with one thing leading to another. It's true that when you start a garden, say, by planting a seed, then the seed, we can say, is a cause. And then upon nurturing it, another cause, a flower may grow, right, an effect. But it's also true that the resulting flower itself will produce seeds, resulting in the potential for more flowers, And flowers and plants, in general, rely on bees and birds. And humans and other animals rely on plants. So karma is not linear. It's a vast web of interrelationships. The mutual interdependence of everything and everyone. People animals, insects, trees, plants, mountains, rivers, cars, buildings, computers, desks. Everything exists in relationship to something else. It's all intertwined. So that we see ourself as discrete or as a unique self is only possible that we exist in relationship to other beings and things. There's a much larger self than us. At the ending of Master Hakuin's chant in praise of Zazen, the last line is, this very body is the body of Buddha. It's not just referring to one's particular body, but the body of this vast whole, the whole of our true nature. I'm going to read a passage from Thich Nhat Hanh on this vast body. And although his tradition is a uh, his practice tradition is different from ours. Um, this, this example is a really good one. And it's about the vast nature of a piece of paper. He says, If you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain... The trees cannot grow, 
and without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, the sheet of paper cannot be here either. Interbeing is a word that is not in the dictionary yet, but if we combine the prefix inter with the verb to be, we have a new verb, interbe. Without a cloud, we cannot have paper, so we can say that the cloud and the sheet of paper inter are. If we look into this sheet of paper even more deeply, we can see the sunshine in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. In fact, nothing can grow, even when we cannot grow without sunshine. Or even we cannot grow without sunshine. And so, we know that the sunshine is also in the sheet of paper. The paper and the sunshine inter are. And if we continue to look, we can see the logger who cut the tree and brought it to the mill to be transformed into paper. And we see, that, and we see the wheat. We know that the logger cannot exist without his daily bread. And therefore, the wheat that became his bread is also in the sheet of paper. And the logger's father and mother are in it too. When we look in this way, we see that without all these things, this sheet of paper cannot exist. And of course, we can go on and on in this way with lots of other examples. And they all point to the wondrousness and the vastness of any given moment. This whole body of Buddha. In closing, I want to circle back to where we are at this juncture, this time of year, the winter solstice and the new year are almost here. We can look back at this year, 2023, and readily feel overwhelmed by world events, wars, climate change, political division, intolerance, discrimination, injustice of all kinds. And then in our personal life, we may have faced really difficult events and challenges in our life. The death of a loved one, the ending of a relationship, a family crisis, a health scare. We may have a lot of anxiety about what next year will bring.
if we look back in time, or if we ponder the future. We need to recognize that we're dwelling in thoughts. We don't know what lies ahead. We don't know what the future will bring and we can't return to the past. We also cannot fathom the intricate web of relationships that brought us here, that brought us to this very moment. But what we have is the opportunity to be present. We have this practice that helps us to cultivate that, to experience life as it is right now. And, and if we can allow ourselves to settle into this now, There is no time. There's no me, no you. There's just this. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.